Hello and welcome to Spy Hard's podcast. I'm Agent Scott. And I'm Cam the Provocateur, yelling yippee. We should try podcasting, that's a good trick. (laughs) And we're here with a very special episode for you this week. You know, as part of our big celebration of our 100th episode, we tackled our namesake, Spy Hard, to figure out if it made the knock list. We even had the director on for a Spy Master interview. And next week, we are chatting to Bond girl extraordinaire, Mariam Darbo. And just a few days ago, we crowned the best of the best on the knock list. We thought what we'd do is give you a little teaser of what's going on over on the Spy Hearts Patreon. That's right. With the series Andor about to kick off, which is an espionage-themed Star Wars show, we thought we'd give you guys, you know, a preview of what comes out regularly on the Spy Hearts Patreon, where we do these episodes, Agents in the Field, where we look at popular films featuring legendary spy actors so we talked about star wars episode one fairly recently and we talked a fair amount about obi-wan kenobi the uh, star wars tv show that just recently wrapped up so we can kind of have a balancing act here where you get to hear us talk about the first of the star wars prequels a movie that i think meant a lot to both of us as well as the star wars show that's leading into andor yeah we're both really proud of this episode and our patrons have all loved it so we thought we'd share it for you as a bit of a teaser because we're also tackling episode two and three over on the patreon and probably will tackle the other star wars films down the road so if you want to get involved with our spy hearts patreon go over to patreon.com spyhards or you can find a link in the show notes below to join up and get involved as an agent but without further ado cam roll the episode hello and welcome to spy hearts welcome to spy hearts podcast and uh, thank you for joining us on another patreon exclusive episode i may have already given it away but uh i'm agent scott and i'm cam the provocateur now scott this is podcasting that's my outro you absolute asshole <laughs> I had that written. Oh my god! Now I have to think of a new one over the next forty-five minutes. Oh boy, boy. Oh boy. There's boy. a few quotable lines I'm sure you can pull from. Just, just a few. Uh, but the ability to speak does not make you intelligent. That is also true. That's very true. Uh, Cam, what are we talking about? We are talking about 1999's Star Wars Episode One: The Phantom Menace. One of one of the most important movies of my generation, honestly. I don't. I wouldn't say it's just your generation because I. I think I'm kind of the generation after you, technically. Speaking. I guess that sort of age range. Yeah, like there's yeah, a very maybe I'm on the end of it, you're on the other end or something. Yeah, like I look at my you know friends' kids who are like teenagers and they watch these movies, but they don't have the impact in their lives that were caused by the uh the phantom menace we are the phantom menace generation we are we are uh well before let's because i want to talk about kind of like our connections to the film as well but let's just do the letterbox.com synopsis for the people who have never heard of this film (laughs) nutters star wars episode one the phantom menace every generation has a legend every journey has a first step every saga as a beginning. Anakin Skywalker, a young slave strong with the Force, is discovered on Tatooine. Meanwhile, the evil Sith have returned, enacting their plot for revenge against the Jedi. Revenge of which is never actually defined in the film, and I'm glad about that. That is very true, actually. I didn't think about that. Because Darth Maul says, we will have our revenge. 
I, I don't. Okay, here's the thing. We've got many places to go with Phantom Menace, but just teeing off of that line, is that a case of they want to tease a mystery, or literally they throw out a line of dialogue and didn't think through whether they would ever resolve it? Well, you could no. It's just clearly Kathleen Kennedy was influencing the films back then, getting ready to make her shows back in 1999. Oh, that was where her power play began. Yeah, she's like, yeah. ah, I know, I know a prequel of the prequels. We can do this. <laughs> Episode minus one. Mm, or minus yes, nine, yes. however you would count it. I don't know. Yeah, no kidding. I mean, it's funny because like I know Star Wars fans like can't stand Kathleen Kennedy for reasons that don't make any sense when you look at the woman's track record. But um, I don't know. The problems start here, Scott. <laughs> and she is not a creative force on the prequels. No, no, not particularly. But, yeah, I... Well, let's talk about that, actually. I think it's kind of what we wanted to talk about. We sort of naturally drifted into it before. This is an important film for the both of us, although we both came at it at different times. I was 12 when this film came out. You were 87? Um, That's correct. Yes, yes. Um, I looked like uh, an old Jedi. I had a robe on. I had to like... You're a ghost. You're blue. I had to make the the terrifying walk from my house to the uh, theater. Um, Yeah, no, I mean, I would have been 18 at the time. Yeah, okay. Stop actually giving your age because people will try and figure it out. And I can't keep doing that old joke anymore. <laughs> but true. I, re- I remember because I was brought up, you know this story. Some people listening might know the story, some people might not. I was brought up in a Star Trek house. But we watched the Star Wars original trilogy. We had them when they released. I, I think I think we taped them off of the telly. So we had copies. And then they released that box set. I think with like Darth Vader on the cover. It was a special editions, I believe. Yep. And they also put them out in theatres. And I saw all three. And they were building to the Phantom Menace. Now, you couldn't escape the media machine that was the Phantom Menace because there was trailers, toys, marketing in your face for at least a year before the film came out. Yep. And I remember being bought in. Uh, I had countless, countless toys from this film. <laughs> I even had, I even had Captain Panaka's gun and i was so <laughs> proud of that um there was a you know grocery chain here in canada called zellers it was the equivalent of like a kmart or whatever um and i remember there was one right by my house and when you went in the entrance they built an entire merchandising gauntlet of phantom menace it was a celebration of star wars episode one before it had come out and I spend so much money because I was someone who grew up massive Star Wars fan. Uh, it's one of the earliest movies I saw was the original Star Wars. Watched Return of the Jedi more times than I, than I can count. And read books. Was obsessed with Star Wars for much of my young life. I collected the vintage action figures. Mm-hmm. Um, just That's your pension hard- right there. That's right, yeah. I've got them all. Every single one. If you look up even the rare ones, I've got them. But in um, box or out of box? Out of box, all loose. But uh, nonetheless, they are some of them are pretty... That yak face figure, it's worth quite a bit of money. But uh, so for me, like this movie was so important when it was coming because I had grown up in a world where there would never be more Star Wars. Maybe an animated show like droids or Ewoks or something like maybe you could get something like that. But beyond that, you were not getting another major movie. And I went to all those re-releases of the special editions. And then I started reading stories that they were going to make prequels. And I, 
almost didn't believe them. It felt almost like, you know, pie in the sky kind of dreaming because in those days you didn't have that. Well, you know, now you go to a, a film website, they've got up-to-date reports from Hollywood Reporter, Deadline, all that sort of stuff. We didn't have that back then. So there was like this sense of, you know, kind of like prequels might be happening. And I started hearing about this in around 94. And then it was kind of this slow build up to, yeah, trailers and everything. And then walking into that Zeller's display of all those Phantom Menace figures and toys and shirts and all that. I mean, I went out of my mind because I was so convinced like, okay, I've collected those vintage action figures. I got to start buying all these too. Scott, in my closet right now, gathering dust is every single episode one carded figure. In box, carded? Yes. Wow. Have you got Captain Panaka? I have Panaka. I have Rico Lee. I've got C.O. Bibble. I've got everything. <laughs> Great names. C.O. Bibble. <laughs> well, it, it, it's like this film for me fell at an interesting like period of time as well because the release date was July 15th, 1999. And um, it's right before the school holidays hit here in the UK. Oh, sorry, July for you? Yeah. Okay, for us it was May. Oh, okay. Yeah, I've just looked at release dates. July 15th, 1999. Right. I, it doesn't surprise me that you guys had it first. That makes sense. Right. Um, it's right before the school holidays hit. And I remember like the last few days of term, I must have been, I think I was in secondary school by this point, the fever pitch. It was palpable. It was, there was a tension. Everyone was talking about Star Wars and we want to see the guy with the double-sided lightsaber because how effing badass did that look. And I remember we went on holiday to the coast. Not really important. But my parents bought me and my two of my brothers lightsabers. So I got the Darth Maul lightsaber and they got Qui-Gon and Obi-Wan. And the entire two weeks we spent just fighting with lightsabers and me pretending to do little Ray Park flips um, mm-hmm. pretend to be Darth Maul. I even, I even glued little bits of, uh, you know, like toilet paper with those cones in the middle? Yep. I cut that up and made little like little horns for my head and stuck them right. on. Yeah, I, I right. really got into that. Um I didn't paint myself, don't worry. But yeah, I it was a very special time. And and, and I will say, as a twelve year old, I really enjoyed this film. Yeah, this was a movie I actually I remember my friend and I sitting and camping out to get tickets. We didn't do the overnight thing, but I think we were in line for oh, it would have been about four or five hours, I think to get the tickets at our local theater. Again, our local theater was smaller. It was not like the bigger one in the city where I'm sure there was probably bigger lineups. Because remember all the stories at the time about people who were lined up for weeks to get tickets to Phantom Menace. My parents, Um, they definitely queued. They definitely queued. I don't think we went opening weekend, though. Okay. I didn't go to the opening show, but I went the opening day um, to the matinee. And I remember just walking out ecstatic. And I honestly don't know... Short of them just like giving me like a test reel with static running through it, if I would have walked out unhappy for any screening of anything branded Star Wars, I was just literally giddy at the prospect of new Star Wars to talk about. And I ended up going to see The Phantom Menace, I think five times in theaters. And it it held the record for me for the most times I'd seen a movie in theaters until I went and saw The Dark Knight 6 just to beat it. I was like, I have to have a really good movie, hold that title, and then I can retire from this going to see things over and over again. Do, um, do you want to know what film has my all-time record? Pirates of the Caribbean 3. Four. <laughs> Four, okay. Stranger Tides, I think. Or, I, don't know, I don't know. That's no, right, it wasn't. Yeah. 
Is it? Oh, that was a complete guess. Um, it is Star Trek 2009. Okay, yeah. like With nine times. Those types of choices to go and see something that many times, they tend to be fan fueled. Like you have to be someone who's like really into that fandom. For me, it was Star Wars. Uh, for you, it was Star Trek. That makes a lot of sense. And then Batman, I'm a huge fan too. So that also adds some, uh, you know, some evidence there. But with this movie, I remember at the time loving it, like walking out and just raving about things like the big lightsaber fight, mm-hmm. um, moments the pod racing, all that sort of stuff. But I do remember, as I kept going to it over and over, this like nagging sensation of this stuff on Tatooine is really slow. And kind of recognizing, as I kept watching it, these pacing issues, they're there, but I was like at war with myself. I was like, it doesn't matter. Those are irrelevant. I need to focus on all the great stuff here. And that was a little bit of my experience with most of the prequels. I didn't see the other ones as many times. But one thing that I think really underlines how my relationship with them changed was, even though I went and saw all of them multiple times in theaters, once they came on home video, I barely ever watched them. And I think I've seen Phantom Menace at home. For this episode, this was probably the third or fourth time. So that's since 1999. I think I've watched this one the most of the three since. Yeah. With episode three next. I actually went the other way around because I was just younger at the time. You know, I, I can't... You'll hear a lot of people on podcasts and in written media or on TV shows saying, oh, yeah, I saw this film and I knew it was a stinker. No, you didn't. Yeah. No, you didn't. I walked out of that theater at 12 and I was like, yes. Yes, yes, yes. More, please. Can we go again, please, parents? It was fantastic. I didn't think about it being slow. And I can uh, and I can actually give you some information to back that claim up. Because last year, we tackled 1998's The Avengers. Yeah. And I told you, I walked out of that film, and I distinctly remember feeling it was like a bad film, and I didn't like my experience. So I was able to understand an experience I didn't like in a cinema. Same. And I still look back on that time and go, I really enjoyed that film. So I definitely did. I think it's only upon reflection. And I think, unfortunately... Peer pressure slash general consensus. Uh, that That's uh, General Grievous's brother. Um, <laughs> that has sort of swung people away from this film. Uh, there, I mean, okay. We watched it again now. and There's things I didn't like. That's, yeah. that's very easy to point out. But I think this film is specifically designed for 12-year-old Scott. It's... Boy, it, there's a lot of weird things to do with the <laughs> the storytelling of this movie. I don't honestly know what age it's made for in some ways. But no, I recall the same thing as you where I was working in TV at the time. So I was working with like a lot of people who were really invested in film and television. And I remember everyone racing out and coming back the next day. And these are people older than me. I was, you know, 18, 17, whatever. Um, but like these were people in their 20s and 30s and even 40s. And, like, they were raving about The Phantom Menace. There was something about just the experience of having Star Wars back. Mm -hmm. Nowadays, I think it's very easy for any person, I don't care what age you are, to become just, like, cynical with, here's, you know, the latest take on a property you enjoy. Because we get that wall-to-wall all year round. Whereas back then, to have Star Wars back was a miracle, and I think people were just enraptured with that whole experience. And and not to mention the, the media machine that they created. Yeah. The marketing machine, I should say, it was so powerful. You just, 
I imagine even my grandparents saw this film in theaters. I would not be surprised if I dragged them to it or if someone dragged them to it because it ate everyone up. I don't know what the box office is in this film. I don't know if it was the most successful of the prequels, but I have to believe it did very well for itself. I don't remember if it beat the third one, um, but the that's f- actually the one made- I saw the most amount of times in cinema. Yeah, uh, it definitely beat Attack of the Clones. Attack of the Clones under underperformed a bit. Um, Phantom Menace did like almost five hundred million domestically. Um, so like, I can it tell was you a- actually if you'd like. Yeah, please. So its budget was a one hundred fifteen million. Mm-hmm. Worldwide gross one billion and twenty seven million. Yeah, that's basically a one hundred percent return uh, times times one hundred. How you do it? I don't know. I'm not. You're asking not someone guy. who's terrible at math. No, yeah. yeah. Um, basically, but, they made money. And you got to think that's 1999. That's movie tickets. What the prices were then? Um, no 3D upcharges. It made 64 million on opening weekend in just U.S. and Canada. I don't know what that is now, but that's got to be like 120 million opening weekend or something. It's a lot. Um, and like I feel like there's three big movie extravaganza kind of blockbuster pushes in my lifetime. Um, I think number one is Batman 89. Number two is Titanic, but that one falls after the movie's opened. People are not raving and excited about Titanic until it's about two weeks, three weeks into release. That's when suddenly the explosion starts. It wasn't as much of a pre-release explosion. And then Phantom Menace. I would I would add on personally Star Trek 2009, but I was so invested in that film that I think maybe my world was, was colored by it, but maybe not everyone else's. But Titanic definitely. Batman 89 tough for me i was born two years earlier i don't think i could remember any of it but yeah well okay so we both had good experiences with this film and we're not going to talk about the other prequels and and i know your uh, mileage may vary folks on on those films and also the sequels we're not tackling those today that we're talking about episode one so the question goes now cam 2022 what do you think of the phantom menace I think something that really helped my experience watching The Phantom Menace last night was just like a couple weeks ago, I went and saw Return of the Jedi live with the, you know, the orchestra performing the score. And I watched just like an audience in the palm of that movie's hand, just exploding throughout the movie. Like, really, I've never come across a rowdy crowd like that in quite a while. Maybe maybe opening night for Spider-Man No Way Home, but like... Were they swinging on vines? From the rafters. <laughs> this was like multi generational. This was people as young as like eight years old to like eighty years old, just in like rapturous applause for um Return of the Jedi. And I was really focusing on the storytelling of that movie and how like it follows the serials of you know Lucas's childhood, the way that Indiana Jones does as well. It's about carrying you by the seat of your pants through an adventure. And that applies to that first three trilogy, and you can see why it works so well. And watching this movie last night, I just kept making notes. I'm like, this doesn't even feel like it's operating within the framework of Star Wars storytelling. It's a very strange movie in that you have like kind of two, maybe three big action scenes, and then the rest of it is very talky. And it almost feels like Lucas, at this point, has revised 
Kind of like Gene Roddenberry did, where you have the original Star Trek is really fun, and then Gene Roddenberry comes back a couple decades later and has this whole kind of like grand philosophical take on what Star Trek is and really changes his approach to what it is. That's kind of what feels like it's going on here, where suddenly it's less about that carry you through an adventure versus here is Star Wars lore, the movie. We are going to explain everything. And to me, pace-wise, this movie does not hold up. I think no. it has a lot of great moments. There's, I agree. Th- there's effects, there's costumes, there's art direction that I think is really incredible to watch. And I think I'm even kinder to those elements now that we watch all of these, you know, made-in-a-computer blockbusters that don't look particularly visually dynamic. I mean, pretty much name any single Marvel movie. The Phantom Menace looks better. Um, there's some effects have an age as well. You know, Jar Jar, 4K is not his friend. Um, but... Uh, a lot of it looks very, you know, visually impressive and grand. You can understand why people are so wowed by it opening, you know, weekend and what have you. But in terms of the storytelling, I'm just, I just have a lot of questions that maybe I'll raise as we continue the conversation. But I just found it kind of very flat as a dramatic experience, even if I could enjoy moments. Well, I'll speak to what you said before I sort of share my thoughts. It's, I think what happened with the release of this film is it probably fell apart with the second viewing for a lot of people. Yeah. Or much like the Alfred Hitchcock sort of icebox thing where they got home and started thinking about it a little bit more because, as you say, visually, especially in 1999, very, very gorgeous-looking film. Like, it's not like anything you're watching in cinemas at that point. It just looks like something. I mean, you compare it to what? Insurrection had come out a year before, and that's just basically people rolling around in hay. I remember there was a bit of a battle, though, at least for me internally that year, of watching Phantom Menace and then seeing The Matrix, I think, like a month or two earlier. Yeah. And then being like, well, hold on. No, no. Star Wars is the greatest of all, whatever, sci-fi fantasy properties. Clearly, that has to be the better movie, right? Right? And really grappling with myself about The Matrix versus Phantom Menace. But I don't think think you could really compare it. It's almost apples and oranges in a sense because... It is. Oh yeah, one's in like an intergalactic, you know, Western in space or some nonsense like that, and the other one is this sort of grounded. Despite it being a high concept sci-fi, the, the Matrix manages to, especially the first one, it feels really gritty. But you're talking to an 18 year old, right? Who's just like, oh, sure. Yeah, Wait, yeah, I'm yeah. grappling with these two kind of sci-fi properties. Which one is better? Oh my god, I don't know. And obviously, like the Matrix, in many ways, was paving a much more exciting path for where movies were going, whereas mm-hmm. Phantom Menace actually started kicking open the door for a lot of the the crappy stuff we deal with now. Yeah. I suppose my point was, it's only upon inspection and the second viewing or the, the, the sort of deep thought that you will start to go, actually, Jar Jar was a bit annoying. Yeah. Actually, that looked a bit hokey. Actually, why did we spend so much time walking around Naboo? <laughs> I don't... Why am I hearing about trade federations and, you know, embargoes? Votes of no confidence. I, yeah, I, I had a vote of no confidence in this film at points. I think we all did. Yeah. kind of wish Chancellor Valoran would come back and save us. <laughs> but, yeah, I, I think... And, that, and that's probably why you probably have a little trouble with it now, because you see the seams where it's coming oh, yeah. apart, and you can pick it. Whereas I think that, that cinema experience the first time, I think we're all a lot nicer to it, because... It's still a visual feast, and that's kind of what you're there for with Star Wars. Star Wars isn't really known for its rich storytelling, I would say. Maybe it is. I don't think I ever really... I think Luke's story and Han's story is quite good, I suppose, but... Well, I think the thing with the original Star Wars trilogy is, I mean, because they're so founded in myths, 
um, and folklore and stories that everyone kind of passes along in generations. Like, there's a simplicity to the storytelling. It's very clean, but it's, like, done in a very sophisticated way. And I think it's just, like, Lucas was working with some really good collaborators and they really refine something that I think hits people at a core that is very hard to replicate. And I don't know that you can even repeat that with things like The Phantom Menace. It's very, it, it was like a perfect time, perfect place, right people, alchemy kind of situation. People always say, um, when you're comparing Star Wars and Star Trek, it's like Star Wars is like the baby version of Star Trek. It, it doesn't require much thought. It's very like candy floss. It's, you know, that sort of thing. Whereas Star Trek is, the thinkers size science fiction i'm not yeah. sure i buy into that because i've seen the star trek films and uh star trek 5 is not for people who think that's true i i also don't think that star wars is dumb i think it's just accessible yeah star trek is, is isn't as accessible now I, i'm going off on a tangent so i'll wind myself back in my thoughts i still love this film I think it's probably my favorite of the prequels. I'm not going to say it's the best. I'm not going to say it's the best written or the best acted. And I'm not going to say the CG is at its height. But I think it has that sort of larger than life feel that the other ones seem to lose a little bit when the Clone Wars and the Hayden Christensen acting and my other problems I have with those films. This this feels like a larger than life Star Wars film. And I think it's the only one that feels that other than the original series. Mm-hmm. I would say 2 and 3 and 7, 8 and 9 do not have that large in life feel. I think one of the benefits this one has is it's telling a very like specific story. And because of the timeline, it's, it's set like 10 years before Attack of the Clones for reasons yeah. that I think are actually very questionable. I don't even really understand why. Um, when you start to look at it in terms of breaking it down as a narrative across those three films. But like, um, I think because of that, it's like it's telling a very specific George Lucas story, whereas I think he got maybe a little shaken by some of the responses and reviews to Phantom mm-hmm. Menace because the reviews were very mediocre for Phantom Menace. Looking back, I, I had no like I had no connection to reviews at that point. But yeah, looking back today, and obviously you, you just pick up through time, people didn't like this film. Yeah. But yeah, there were some... I mean, what's it like? It's, it's 51 on, on, like, it's 50... Yeah, like 51% on... Yeah, so 6.5 on IMDb, 51% on Metacritic. Like, it's not it's not great. No, and Lucas started bringing um, co-writers to work on the, you know, the follow-ups. And it just feels like this was whatever it is, whether you like it or hate it, this was a very pure, like, George Lucas-driven film, whereas I feel like the prequels get more of the... Uh oh, we have to keep the fans happy. We have to work in more fan service. We've got to answer more questions that no one needed answering. That sort of stuff. Um, I don't know that I would say this is the best, but it's in many ways the one I'm able to watch that doesn't feel as compromised. Like I watch episode three and there's stuff in it I like more, but then it also feels like sometimes just filling in the blanks. Well, like episode three has some great bits of, say, the showdown on Mustafar. That's basically what springs to mind. But episode two, I could completely forget. I just yeah. remember Obi-Wan running around with a bunch of clones and, and Jango Fett being killed very quickly for no reason whatsoever. But this I remember a lot. Even Jar Jar Binks, much as, you know, the derision he's received over the years and some of that stuff that the, you know, the actor Ahmed Best got from this film, completely unfair. He did exactly what was asked of him. Yeah. Um, I'm not saying he's a very good 
character, and I think I want to pivot on to maybe one of the problems I have with this film, and maybe something that was written out by his co-writers in the follow-ups, is George Lucas slightly racist? It's so weird, because you can look at that original Star Wars trilogy, and it feels like he's creating alien characters by and large. Like, you don't have as much... I mean, there's things that obviously has been touched on with the Tusken Raiders in years mm-hmm. going forward, the way they've sure. developed them, and said, like, well, hold on, there's some problematic elements with maybe the Tusken Raiders in the original Star Wars. But, like, there is really weird on-the-nose stuff, like with um, Jar Jar's voice and behavior. Watto. Um, Watto. Also, the Trade Federation people. Um mm-hmm. I don't understand what was going on. And clearly, you know, when you look at the original Star Wars, especially the first two, they had a producer, Gary Kurtz, on those movies, who was a pretty strong producer. And I think was someone who would talk to Lucas and be like, hey, this isn't maybe a great idea. Let's work this through. Because the original visions of Star Wars were very different than what wound up in A New Hope. And the problem was, I think when it came to these prequels, he surrounded himself with people that were like, oh my God bow down it's george lucas and i remember rick mccallum was the producer on those films and like he was a guy who was so rick mccallum really liked i think some publicity so he would be on all these like you know talk shows and giving interviews all the time talking about the genius of george lucas and how the special editions were the true defining masterpieces of what that original trilogy were and he was on board for these prequels and i just think ideas like that were terrible ideas that for some reason no one said george that's a bad idea well, I don't, I don't agree with the revisionist history of special editions. And also, they've done stuff in this film that I don't remember. They've added things. Uh, the CG Yoda is the thing I noticed. CG Yoda, but like, there's some stuff in... I'll have to go back and check, but there's like people walking around in Tatooine that weren't there. And you can see they're cut in. I watched this on yeah. Disney+. Plus. Oh, okay. So I don't know what sort of treatment it's had. I know they've added in... like There's a, shit, there's a scene of the uh, Naboo starship in, on Tatooine. And it was meant to be like a wide shot. And then in this, they've inserted those um, sort of rhino-looking drinking things uh, walking around in the desert around it. Yeah. Like, I don't... It doesn't need to happen. Yeah. Leave well enough alone. Uh, Speaking to the point of sort of the problematic elements, racially or religiously, I mean, there's all kinds of strange undercurrents here that I, I think are problematic. I don't know if they were, you know shots off the bow from George Lucas or they just were him not thinking. I'm not going to defend it because I think it was a bad choice. I'm glad he had filters. I just... Like, I remember I remember reading what he wanted to do with episode 7 and just thinking, oh, no, that wouldn't have done well as a film. So I'm, I'm glad he had people come in for the other films. But still, I think this is, for me, the more enjoyable of, of the three prequels. I I think it has. I can almost scenes. put it to one side. You know what I mean? Like, it, yeah, it, it's it's a problem. But I, I'm 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 glad if you look at it, he obviously sought and was given help in the follow-ups. Yes. So it's, it's he corrected his issue. It's like he didn't double down and have a family of Wattos and we're all like, <laughs> oh boy, like this isn't good. He pulled away from it really. Jar Jar almost disappears. That's true. Yeah, Jar Jar I think disappeared because of fan response. Although I would say like a lot of scripting issues continue. Those continue well through those prequel, uh, the the other prequels. Even though he's got writers coming on to help him, are you saying that you like sand? <laughs> Save that for another day. Um, but like, I I just had questions watching this movie because this one, 
normally when we do say like i don't know a random movie on spy hards british agent or something my notes are like wall to wall a mix of plot detail stuff just for me to be able to read and remember for when i sit down to do the review and then also moments of like oh you know make a note of this um what's the character motivation here that sort of stuff like critique kind of stuff sure whereas like this movie it was kind of all larger bigger questions because i pretty much memorized this movie anyway yeah and like when you look at the original star wars trilogy it's very clear whose story it is. It's Luke Skywalker's story. And yes, Han and Leia have important arcs and have, you know, we spend a lot of time developing them, but it is the story of Luke from, you know, farm boy to Jedi at the end of Return of the Jedi. When I'm watching The Phantom Menace as a step one, and I think if you watch A New Hope, you know whose story it is. Whose story is Phantom Menace? I, I hadn't considered that. I don't think I, I tend to look at films that way. You have a point, though. I would say this is meant to be Anakin's story, but it's also kind of Obi-Wan's story. It, Obi-Wan? He spends half the time sitting on the ship. He's like a passenger in this movie. Yeah, it does kind of feel like a genesis for him, though. He becomes a Jedi Knight in this film. Uh, it's also Qui-Gon's story. It's also Padme's story. My main note was, I think at the end of this movie... Qui-Gon just spends a lot of time just sitting back and letting other people help him achieve his aims. You know, like he bets it all on Anakin being able to basically save the day, being a pod, you know, racer. Um, Anakin has fairly minimal screen time. Like it takes a long time for him to show up. And then he's like basically just standing by waiting to get up into that ship at the end. So it's not really his story. I think, and Obi-Wan spends a lot of time just kind of frankly um not agreeing not agreeing with the decisions that Qui-Gon is making and then being left on the ship I think if anyone you can make the argument for it's Padme and we have a lot of this movie is centered on Naboo and what her um you know how this impacts her her going with the Jedis she is there pretty much every step of the way of the story but I would say that this is if you're to make the argument who the main protagonist is it's Padme but the movie I don't think thinks that's the case you're trying to convince me, Cam. You stop waving your hand like that. It won't work. <laughs> I would also... I'm not sure I'd buy Padme. I get it. I get your point. I totally get yeah. it. I'm not sure it's yeah. really her film. I would also say partly it's it's um, Palpatine's film. But he's barely in it. Well, maybe this is what you're trying to get to, is that there isn't really a, a protagonist. It's a group of protagonists that aren't really interconnected. Yeah. They're all just on their own little journeys that will eventually tie together in episode three. Yes. Which is perhaps messy. And I had to ask myself this because I'd never really sat down and thought about, you know, there's been since the years this movie came out, so many like amazing pieces of criticism, such as the red letter media stuff and mm -hmm. many, many smart people writing, um, you know, essays about the Phantom Menace. But like, I really began to like question, okay, this movie set 10 years before the events of like attack of the clones why and and like why is qui-gon necessary like why couldn't you put obi-wan in that spot have him be the one that discovers anakin and then have conflict between obi-wan and yoda about whether anakin should be trained uh, these are a good question I, I i don't know if i have the direct answer for you i i think and, ma and make anakin like a teenager well maybe it leads back to what you said and that is the sequels to the prequel, two and three, had additional writers. Maybe the idea that 
uh, you know, uh, you know, Lucas had was going to evolve differently from this episode. Maybe we weren't going to see such a jump to like eighteen-year-old Anakin in the next film. Yeah, maybe this changed through the you know through that sort of thing. But obviously, we got what we got. I'm not sure I'm gonna hold it over the fire for that choice. I think the thing that I have a problem with is some of the lore. Yeah. I mean, I'm not a big Star Wars guy. Like, I've seen them all. I don't like the sequels. I like The Last Jedi a bit, maybe, because it tries to be different. Yeah. I really, really like Last Jedi a lot. I liked Force Awakens. Um, it's I liked know, it when I saw it, and then not when I got home. It's a little bit greatest hits of Star Wars. Um, yeah. And I just, I really walked out of Rise of the Skywalker so unhappy. So they fly now. They fly now. Yeah. yeah. Not not a good film, and we won't be covering that ever. Um, it's going on a disavowed list before we even talk about it. That's just <laughs> not a good film. Uh, I, I think, and this is why I think um, Lucas's idea for what would have been episode seven would have failed, because I, don't, I, I think he wants to over-explain a lot of the time. Yeah. Like, midichlorians, the concept of midichlorians should not exist. Yeah. I do not need to know why the Force exists. It's meant to be mystical. It's meant to be unexplained. It's meant to be larger than life. And when you boil it down to something like, oh, it's just these little beings that are microscopic that give you the ability to run really fast. Mm. And also, I mean, can we talk about the immaculate conception that is Anakin Skywalker? Yeah. And that it's never mentioned again? Yeah, I feel bad for Pernilla August, who was, you know, cast as Anakin's mother. And I remember reading interviews with her before the movie came out. And now I watch the movie and I'm like, God, this character, I don't even know what to make of this character. Because you have that revelation. You have her saying, my place is here. And I'm like, as as a slave on Tatooine, I guess. But that immaculate uh, conception thing, I get what he's going for in terms of like, you know, folklore and traditional stories. But like, it's not dealt with. This isn't something that Anakin grapples with in future movies. It's kind of tossed off and not acknowledged. Which is funny because this whole sh- series deals with fathers. Yeah. You think that's like the perfect opening. Like, he, oh, I don't have a father? Right. That's, that, well, that's a whole other set of issues for someone to deal with who hasn't got a strong father figure in their life. Doesn't matter who that parent is, but if they don't have that person. That's, that can really affect someone. And they never deal with that again. And they never deal with the larger issue of, sorry, how? Yeah. Like, you know, Qui-Gon takes it to the council and they're like, hmm, yeah, immaculate conception. All right, yeah. Well, that checks out. We've had that before. Yaddle just popped out of nowhere and disappeared just as fast. (laughs) Why aren't they talking about, like, you know, a human being created by the Force? Like, that is a compelling concept as well. And They want him to go away. They're like, yeah. actually, who's the, who the F is this Anakin guy? Get him out of this temple. We don't need him here. And Quite goes like, no, no, no. This is like, this is the coming of Jesus. What are you talking about? No, we don't need him. He's he's just a slave. Send him back. I remember even as a kid, though, or I guess a teenager, being like, the Jedi Council sucks. <laughs> like, there's I nothing. Just, they just so sit boring. there all day. I, I In my head, I thought Jedis would be like swashbuckling pirates or something out saving the galaxy which i guess the knights are maybe doing that maybe the council sit around all day but the jedi knights are out having adventures and i mean plo Koon's still the biggest badass i've ever seen in my life <laughs> plo Koon. yeah i think like the animated shows did a better job of showing like jedis doing cool things we interrupt this program to bring you a special report calling all agents independent podcasting 
much like the spy game, requires considerable resources. Whether it's research, equipment, hosting, or of course constructing a top secret volcano lair, we're putting out the call for your support. That's right, as you may know, we've activated the Spy Hearts Patreon, home of our ever-growing lineup of Agents in the Field episodes where we decode non-spy films from your favorite spy actors and full film commentaries with more intel than a Basil Exposition briefing. Cam, what have we got in our crosshairs this month? The Taken commentary? Oh, it's live. And we're going to look at the first installment in the Clint Eastwood franchise, Dirty Harry, from 1971. I think it's going to make your day. And if that sounds delicious, then become a true spy hard today and join the circus at patreon.com slash spyhards. But before this message self-destructs, Cam, resume the spy jinx. But like... You were talking about over-explaining, and I, you know, I wish they'd over-explained the Immaculate Conception because I think that's maybe an interesting angle to look at that character from. But nonetheless, there's like a moment I actually highlighted because I think that's something that a lot of people talk about this movie being too talky, but they can't really like explain why. And I think a lot of it is it's very low energy dialogue. Um, characters just kind of talk in a very formal tone, the way that they don't in the originals, where it's like characters are barreling through those stories, right? Like making jokes and there's big emotion and this movie's mm -hmm. very reserved in that regard but there was one scene i wanted to highlight which is this is building up to the finale where they are going back and they need the gungans and they go to the water and jar jar's like they're not there they're at the sacred place okay well i guess we better go to the sacred place cut to them at the sacred place like okay we need your help okay why did they go to the water in the first place you don't it's star wars storytelling the whole point is we find them immediately it's we we are being carried along on the adventure we're not going place to place being like oh they're not here hmm. well where is boss nass <laughs> you know what i mean like i remember in raiders of the lost ark you know another lucasfilm joint there where there's the moment where they're taking away the ark on the trucks and there's one line where um indigo's trucks what trucks boom action sequence it is carrying you. You know what Indy wants and what he's pursuing. We know they want the Gungans. They need to get them into the battle. Jar Jar goes, the Gungans will probably be at the sacred place. Boom. Next scene, they're talking to Boss Nass. Like, there's ways to cut around this stuff that the movie doesn't do. And it spends a lot of time of characters having very slow walk and talks. I agree. And I didn't pick up on that particular scene, although there are a lot of moments of pontification in this movie. Like, there's some quotes that you don't forget. I mean, Yoda saying, you know, fear leads to anger, anger leads to that. That, great, 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 great. Yeah. Holds, it still gets quoted now. This movie had amazing trailers. Amazing yeah. trailers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But there's a lot <laughs> yeah. of other bits of people talking, like in the Senate. And, you know, oh, Chancellor Valorum, I shall have to give a decree of no confidence for Chancellor Valorum. <laughs> I, I second that motion for no doubt. And you just say, why? You could have just had a guy going, yes, Chancellor of Lorem has been voted out and uh, Palpatine's now in this place. Okay, cool. Off we go. Next scene. Yeah. But I think I think one thing is maybe, just positing an idea, maybe they want to show off the CG. Well, I think that is an aspect of it. Although, I mean, I guess, although Lucas always seems smarter than that. I mean, it seemed like he definitely well. fell down the effects rabbit hole. But you go back to the original Star Wars and Indiana Jones, it was all about the story being, you know, complemented by effects, not being told by effects. But it seemed like there was a bit of a switch flip there when you got to the pre the prequels. Um, but it And also 
indie four. Yeah. And honestly, like, I remember a lot of the criticisms at the time and in the years that followed being about Kid Anakin, Jar Jar, elements like that that people thought were overly childish. And um, and I feel very bad for the kid that played Anakin, Jake Lloyd. Like, his life has been very rough. And you're being directed by someone who's not an actor's director. Like, good luck. And given dialogue, like, you mean I get to come with you in a starship? Like, stuff like that. That's awful. Are and, you an you angel? Know, it's dialogue and a performance that a proper director, I think, who's good with actors would not have gotten. But, I mean... Lucas's defense for these kind of childish elements was, it's a kid's movie. Star Wars has always been a kid's movie. There's a lot of trade embargoes and Senate stuff and politics in this movie. A lot of walking and talking. Did Lucas just lose perspective as to what a kid's movie is? Because I think you can easily make the argument that the original Star Wars trilogy are kid's movies. I mean, kids of all ages. Potentially so. I think another thing is as well... No, I actually, I think you're right. I think it is that. I think he had, did lose sight of it. I think I think maybe he wanted to try and evolve what a kid's film was. I'm not defending Lucas here, by the way, folks. This film has its flaws. I'm not saying it's a masterpiece. I just, for me, there's like a nostalgia thing, thing built into this that I can't escape. Oh, believe me, I have the nostalgia for it. Even just turning it on last night and seeing, you know, the opening moments, I'm like, I'm you know going straight right back, back into that, that theater scene. experience yeah, yeah it's more just like i try as as hard as i sometimes can just to like disconnect from nostalgia sometimes when i'm looking at something and being like okay oh i'm having nostalgia beating out of me over the last few years trust me it's i'm slowly <laughs> yeah, yeah. detaching myself from nostalgia i i walked out of jurassic world dominion just hating dinosaurs congratulations trevor you've finally done it you bastard and I'll sit and watch something like the original Ninja Turtles movie. And like, there's a pretty big plot hole in the middle of that that I go, okay, that doesn't work so well. But the rest of the movie still holds up decently. And same with Batman 89, the finale of that's a mess. But that doesn't mean I can't turn them on and enjoy them. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, they are just experiences that obviously meant a lot to me when I was young and still have an energy that I enjoy. Same with Phantom Menace. I'll just be complimentary because I've been basically underlining story issues. I think there are... When the movie commits to action, which is so rare in the movie, like even in the previous Star Wars movies, there's always action, even if it's just small little beats. But like this movie, I think the um, pod race is still really incredible. Yeah. I think it's very well staged. It has a lot of Ben-Hur-like energy that I appreciate. Um, I am a big Sabalba fan. I think that character is really fun. Um, Maybe one of the more childish elements that worked for me. Sure, sure. The pod race, I think, is great. The lightsaber duel at the end is fantastic. That was what I was going to bring up next. Is is that, and also, I think, I said about the lore, I think one thing this film does do well is create new characters. Yeah. Qui-Gon Jinn is memorable. He is in one film, and I still think about Qui-Gon Jinn. And so memorable, he's back in Obi-Wan. Spoilers. I wonder if Qui-Gon Jinn would pop more for people if he wasn't the only character that spoke in a very reserved tone. Like, every character talks in this very, like, regal kind of way. Even, like, Amidala's doing it. And I wonder if, like, you'd had characters who had a little more of the energy of the originals, and you had Qui-Gon there, speaking the way he does, you'd have more of that kind of, like, wise Obi-Wan kind of sense of him versus him sounding like a lot of the other characters. But I do kind of get the approach, because this wasn't the the world that had been torn apart by the empire which we had in episode four 
this is the galaxy functioning in a in a democracy and everyone takes their jobs very seriously and it takes the rise of Anakin Skywalker and Palpatine to tear that down and form the empire and to start a war i people always like, bag on these films for looking too pristine yeah i totally get why it does and it should i the cg looks a bit wonky from time to time but like that Naboo starship is meant to look nice. Beautiful. It's meant to be ornate. And there's a reason why the Mandalorian, they're cracking out the old Naboo starfighter and giving it to him because that stuff looked good. It was well designed. Mm-hmm. Well, it's taking original stabs at Star Wars versus when you get to the sequel trilogy and they are basically just taking designs from the original films and just kind of, you know, adding parts to them to make them look a little more updated. I like that... Put an orange stripe on the X-Wing. That'll be a new thing. Exactly, yeah. yeah. And, I mean, I I like how this movie, in a visual design sense, I think it's really interesting, the way they are building that world. Yeah, as you said, there's the odd, you know, CG matte screen or something like that, where you go like, oh, that looks kind of like a screensaver. But this one at least has a lot of physical locations, and so it actually looks quite good, and it integrates more of, like, the... um kind of the the CG world building quite well. Um, To me, it's just, as I said, right up top, it's more like the CG characters like Watto and Jar Jar haven't aged particularly well, especially in 4K. But, uh, you know, the resolution on the effects just doesn't look as impressive. But um, by and large, I think the world building looks pretty great. Like, it's a... You can't really fault these prequels for looking bad. No, I I think people who say that are just trying to be edgy. I gotta say. Yeah, to me, it makes absolutely no sense to say that like this movie looks terrible but like jurassic world dominion or you know like the latest marvel movie looks good yeah shang chi didn't look good this looks better than shang chi oh yeah by a country mile i i do just want to mention one thing i liked before we sort of wrap up on this discussion and look at sort of final notes on it because and you mentioned the lightsaber battle but that is potentially for me the best lightsaber battle in the whole nine films i the music and we didn't talk about john williams score again i think oh the, yeah, the jewel of the fates that piece of music is again potentially one of the best bits he's ever written next to you know the imperial march or the star wars theme that's probably next on in line in terms of music he's ever written and this is one of his only scores i will ever actually listen to all the way through you see, I would have made the argument for Yub Nub, the original mm-hmm. ending song from Return of the Jedi. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, Duel of the Fates, I think, is absolutely incredible. Um, Williams's work, frankly, through all of the prequels is top tier. Like, the storytelling may not be at its usual A level that Star Wars frequently is, but the music is. Like, yep. this is carried through on, jo- on John Williams. And I remember they did a concert tour called Star Wars Live. That went around. I don't know if it headed over across the pond. But I think in North did, America. But I wouldn't did. have gone to it. But go on. Okay, it was like a stadium tour, which was questionable because the stadium was about one eighth full when I saw it, um, which was kind of sad. But they had Star Wars props everywhere, and then they had big video screens up, and it was montages of Star Wars scenes cut to the orchestra performing the music. And I remember when they did Duel of the Fates and they had singers there doing all the you know the the singing parts of that song. It was absolutely incredible to hear live. And something I probably won't get many opportunities to do because yes, I go and see orchestras doing Star Wars music, but it's very rare they have like a choir also accompanying. Well, you heard me do the intro. Yeah, yeah. It doesn't get any better than that. 
No, that's true. Or maybe everyone turned off the podcast at the start of the episode. It's entirely fair. Yeah. But, but yeah, that that whole thing works well. Uh, people, I've, I've heard, there was like a video analysis or something I read that said one of the faults of this film is having four climaxes running simultaneously. Yeah, I think Red Letter Media said that. I mean, it, it's jumping off of the um, Return of the Jedi, which had three. Yeah. Um, And I think the problem for me is it's not that there's four. I don't think that's an issue because it is this the Battle of Naboo. We're seeing it from different perspectives and different fields yeah, of combat. It's, it's one big battle from different points of view. Yeah. I think maybe we have to look at the four because I think the lightsaber duel is easily the highlight. Absolutely. Um, it's, and I thought Darth Maul was just the coolest back in the day. I wish he had more screen time and had been developed more, but he's pretty damn cool. And I actually have an autographed photo of, from Ray Park that says, To Cam, feel the force from Ray Park. <laughs> but... Um, Obi-Wan season two. Yeah. The Padme stuff with the droids is fine. It never really has a, like a crescendo. It doesn't build to anything particularly big. And then like the two other big set pieces are Anakin and the fighter, which is frustrating because it's a kid just basically playing around and saving the day. That one I've never been a fan of. I think if it had been a teenage Anakin, would make way more sense and could have been actually pretty cool. Well, it takes all the um, agency away from the actual trained star fighters that don't get the job done. Yeah. And they're like, oh, who did that? Oh, it's one of ours. And he's like, like mm, Let's try spinning. That's a, a neat trick. trick. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and and yeah. like, I'm going to trade in my flying license now. Apparently kids could do it better than me. Yeah. And then the Jar Jar and the Gungans fighting the droids, I always thought was a missed opportunity to really play up. You, sir. I, here's what... Here's how I would have salvaged Jar Jar. Um, is that, okay, you see the other Gungans, you show them as a very capable military force battling those droids. And I think, like, then you have in Episode 2, which was taking a 10-year leap, you have Jar Jar, after this battle, being promoted as a general in the Gungan army and coming back as someone who's more mature. And you say, like, that was the younger, immature version of Jar Jar. And now we're dealing with someone who's more of a grown-up character. That's how I would have done it. And change his the voice, voice changes completely. Like he's like, "Oh, hello there, Obi Wan. How are you? I am Jar Jar Binks." He's like wearing a top hat and speaking in a British accent. <laughs> a monocle. He's got like this cigarette on the the plastic extender thing. <laughs> but at least that would show character growth for the character. Like I think that would be something. But I think the problem is is that they play the entire battle with the Gungans as comedic set pieces for Jar Jar, which. It kind of removes the danger. And I think there's also... I'm not even going to blame the end of the movie. I think right from almost... I guess it would be like the first five minutes of the movie. They make a fatal error, which is that um, battle droids are useless. They have absolutely no ability to do anything properly. They are not scary. They cannot hit a target to save their life. I think that was a real mistake. I mean, I was obsessed with the droid cas. Roger, roger. I thought they were, I thought they were super cool. They were cool, but they were also very sparsely used. It was frequently those like chicken-headed things that were yeah. useless. And and now they're just used for like meme material on Star Wars TV shows and stuff. Like that's they've been reduced to that now, which is yeah a shame. It sounds like I I mean I suppose I didn't sort of say, but if you haven't seen this film for some reason, I'd say see it. Yeah, I I would agree. I'd, I'd say watch it. I think it's important. I would always, I think, 
having now seen not just these, but also the new sequel uh, trilogy and also stuff like Rogue One and Solo and the various TV shows, if I, well, you know, if I have kids, I would be showing them the original trilogy and then I would use the other ones as uh, supplementary material. If they really enjoyed that original trilogy, then we'd go and do the prequels and go and do the sequels and things like that. But I would not be starting with those and I would not be putting the focus on those. I'd start with Rogue One. <laughs> I'd start with Solo. <laughs> Kids, that's a cliffhanger ending, huh? <laughs> You're never going to get that resolved. Actually, they probably will now. Um, by the time you have kids, it will just be content wall-to-wall of Star Wars TV shows that explains every single nook of every single cranny. Yeah, yeah, probably um, at this point. Now, we did sort of tease in the last episode, but we did want to quickly share our thoughts on the Obi-Wan TV show. Now, you've been doing week-to-week reports on your other podcast, Subspace Transmissions, so shout out there, um, with our previous guest on the show, Tyler Orton, who did our Three Days of the Condor and Diamonds Are Forever episodes. So if you want like a detailed thoughts on from Cam of what he thought of the show, head on over to there. But, I mean, just from you, Cam... Did season one work? I, I, and I say season one because even on Disney Plus now it says season one. Oh, does it? Did it work for you? Oh, that's interesting. I hadn't noticed that on Disney Plus because you and McGregor's been very like, I'd like to do another one versus like Kathleen Kennedy and Deborah Chow were a little more cagey being like, no, we saw this as a one season story. So yeah, but if you read that article, I think I've read the same thing. They both then said, but if the reception's really good and it's been yeah. the most downloaded thing on Disney Plus ever. Yeah. Okay. Well, there you go. Um, my opinion of Obi-Wan is it is pretty much passionless corporate storytelling where they took elements of Star Wars that is popular and sells toys. You know, Darth Vader sells a lot of toys um, and just basically engineered this kind of TV series that was answering questions that no one had. Mm-hmm. So I like Ewan McGregor. I like him as Obi-Wan. I was excited about the prospect of him coming back. I did not need this other encounter with Darth Vader that happened before the one in A New Hope. And the elements that this show introduced that were kind of new to the story, like, you know, the, um, whatever they're called, the, the people who hunt Jedis. Inquisitors, yeah. Fell flat. So I'm kind of left with this show that just was a complete blah to me. Whereas, like, you know, Mandalorian has really worked for me because it's kind of carving out its own little corner of lore in Star Wars and can do kind of whatever it wants. Um, Boba Fett was more of, I think, just a storytelling head scratcher where it's like we just completely abandoned the entire concept of the show for two episodes. It's very clear even they got bored with Boba Fett. But Obi-Wan just feels almost like people like the original trilogy. Give them that. I I have a frustration with Obi-Wan. And I, I agree with what you said, Cam. I wouldn't recommend people watch it unless you're a diehard Star Wars fan. Because I don't think it really gives you anything. I don't think it, it enriches your episode four viewing experience or your episodes one to three viewing experience. If anything, it complicates a few things, but that's up for debate. I'll leave that there. The prequels also started that with compliment, uh, complicating canon. They did, they did. So that's maybe that's just in, in sort of tune with what the other ones were doing. My issue is with its choice to deal with pre-established characters. Mm. Yeah. There's a gap in time. Now, obviously, he's meant to be on Tatooine looking after Luke, but there's no reason why, I don't know, a fledgling Jedi 
couldn't have fallen across his lap and he had to help protect him on some sort of adventure throughout the galaxy and get uh, get Obi-Wan his groove back and by the end he has sees the ghost of Qui-Gon and then in season two they go deal with Darth Maul like that 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 seems to work in my head and you could have all new characters that are not in the other films they could also die they could stay alive but instead they chose to deal with all these people who have a predetermined destiny Darth Vader has to survive Luke Skywalker has to survive Leia Organa has to survive and so there's no stakes at any point I don't care if Reva survives she's a bad guy she could die it doesn't bother me there's that that lady who's kind of working for the early proto resistance yeah um and she dies like i think that's meant to be a heart-wrenching moment and i just kind of went okay because they she's in one episode she dies in the next okay and then there's like that one starfighter guy who dies and then oh what happened to (laughs) blur it's like uh don't you know and i was like uh, it's like a heartfelt like bit of music and i was like i don't care i don't care and so I'm more frustrated with the concept and what they did because I remember reading it. Yeah, correct me if I'm wrong, Cam. There was another idea, another script, and they tore it up and they started again. There was also a movie. Obi Wan was originally being developed as a film. So I, I wish I knew what those other things were because maybe it was like a budget thing. They just like couldn't afford it. Entirely possible. I think what happened was Obi Wan was going to be a movie until Solo underperformed. Yeah, I think that no, I think that is what happened. I just mean like I don't know what was in that original script that made them go, "We can't do this. Let's start again and come up with just this mediocre story." I've heard rumors it was too dark, <sighs> which I get. I I kind of lament this dark, grim, dark storytelling we get these days. I can understand that. Although in the Star Wars universe, the universe is in a dark period. The Empire is slowly gripping on the Outer Rim and, and, and the you know, other sectors, and it's slowly like consolidating its power. And so there's just misery everywhere. So I get why it could have been dark. But anyway, I'm interested to see if they do a follow-up. I think there are stories they could tell. But if they didn't do it, I would also be fine with it. And I find when I'm looking at you know the classic Star Wars, even the Phantom Menace, there are like... The pace goes up and down. Like, you hit those action sequences, they can become exhilarating. Like, Star Wars is kind of this emotional roller coaster in the best cases. And to me, Obi-Wan was a straight line. It was just kind of this bland television that I went, okay, it checked the boxes, I guess. But, like, it feels like it was designed just to be the latest Star Wars TV show. It didn't feel special. It didn't feel like they had a real, you know, spark of ingenuity behind it. It was just like... We can get you and McGregor, people like Obi-Wan Kenobi, sign the check, let's do it. That's kind of what it felt like. But, you know, kind of jumping off of Obi-Wan, and before we wrap up, Scott, we have to turn The Phantom Menace into a spy film. I was worried about this. So, we've got Qui-Gon Jinn and Liam mm-hmm. Neeson. That's the reason we're doing this one, obviously. Yeah. Um, Although, you know, Natalie Portman... It's got Leon the Professional, I think, another film as well we haven't tackled yet. And there's a couple of other connectives. But yeah, Liam Neeson is the reason why we're here. Yeah. We haven't made one single particular set of skills jokes on this episode. You should be proud of us. That's true. And I mean, Qui-Gon had some special skills there. That moment, cool Qui-Gon Jinn moment, is when he's like takes down a couple battle droids and holsters that lightsaber lightning fast. I always like that little yeah. action beat. That's I, well done. I didn't like the bit, uh, we're going back to it, but like, do you remember when they do that force run right at the start? I don't get that. They never do it again. Nope. In the entire show. I mean, it's from the video games. Force run is from the video games. It was something you could do. 
but like it looks so goofy. Maybe that was why they didn't do it again. But it's interesting. Like it would have aided people in so many fights. It's true. True. Um, yeah, I'm just looking at the cast. I guess Terrence Stamp is probably in a spy film we're going to cover at some point. He just feels like someone who was born to be in spy movies. Yeah. Um, I think Ewan McGregor's in one called Eye of the Beholder that uh, is on the list as well to cover. Maybe Ray Park pops up as like a stuntman in a few action oh, films we haven't done yet. he does. He's in uh, Ballistic X vs. Sever. He's the villain. Mm, there we go. So we have some spies. Uh, well, let, let, I mean, let's make it shorthand. So... Who's going undercover? Isn't Padme our spy? Yeah, I think so, because Padme has an actual cover and has that whole, um, you know, act with her double. Or is Palpatine our spy? He's definitely embedded. Yeah. Okay, we've got to figure out what's the narrative here. Is it is it two spies? It's two spies against each other. So Padme is pretending... So Amidala is the spy, sorry. Pretending to be Padme to take down the evil spy, Chancellor Palpatine, who's walking, working in her government as a double agent. I, I don't think so. I, I'm looking at it more as like two spies from opposing sides that are both working without knowledge of one another in many ways. Like, okay. I, guess, I guess like, um, you know, the evil spy, we'll call him, the uh, Palpatine character, is aware of what's going on with Amidala, so maybe that gives him like the upper hand. But like, it's sort of like a departed situation for me. Like, her main objectives is to topple whatever you want to call it. Like, a, you know, there's obviously things going on with Naboo, right? Like, she is a spy who's trying to save the her... Sith spy ring. Yes, exactly. Break up the Sith spy ring, or the Trade Federation spy ring, perhaps. Sure. Which yeah. is... um, We could even do, like, a parallax view type thing, where it's like the Trade Federation's like an evil corporation that is threatening her, you know, homeland, and she has to go undercover to topple that corporation. But then at the same time, you almost have like a Day of the Jackal thing going on with Palpatine, who's working in the shadows. And maybe that explains why this is a trilogy. <laughs> yeah, we've got part one with no resolution whatsoever. What's everyone else doing? Are they all just, are they just like innocent bystanders working in the organizations? Are you talking about the Phantom Menace or this hypothetical movie? Because I don't know what they're doing either in Phantom Menace. <laughs> well, that, yeah, that's fair. Okay, okay, well, let's figure it out. Um... Okay, so if she is a spy, the thing is, it's tough because, like, the people she's working with don't even know what's going on. Like, Qui-Gon doesn't appear to know that she is It's kind of like queen. an undercover boss situation. Like, she is a spy going undercover, to, with, and she's pretending to be helpless, so the Jedis will help her gain access and get close to Palpatine. They're like the muscle. The Jedi are the muscle. Right. Okay. I can kind of get that because you can see in like movies where like Bond will have military allies that all show up at the end and engage in a battle, right? Like they're not taking part Felix in the spying. Yeah. yeah. You send in the Jedis as kind of your frontal assault. The Sith know and the Trade Federation know what Jedis are. So they're distracted by the Jedis. Meanwhile, Padme is like able to work in the shadows because everyone's Infiltrating looking at the... the palace. Exactly. Because everyone's looking at the dudes with the lightsabers. Yes, it's like a well, it's cloak and dagger. There you go. Yeah, uh, quite literally. So, okay. So, what her goal is to basically uh, to destroy the Sith spy ring. She doesn't quite do it in this film, but she'll hopefully do it by the third one. Is it a Sith spy ring or is it the Trade Federation? Are we going with the parallax view like corporation? Or are we going with the Sith spy ring? I think because of the arc of the two films that come after it, I think it's a Sith spy ring because it's run by. Palpatine. I think I'm going to argue against this one. I think it's a parallax view like 
trade federation organization and they don't realize the sith spy ring is active go at this moment that's why it's a trilogy scott that's why in the second one the sith spy ring becomes more and more clear i think what we've written here is a confusing uh story <laughs> much like the phantom menace and so that i think it works why are they picking up an eight-year-old kid <laughs> um well there you go folks that was our attempt at trying to turn the phantom menace into a spy movie i'm not sure it was particularly successful but you could let us know you have a better you know way of doing it than we do um i guess the next question goes over to you cam what are we going to be tackling next time on agents in the field because it's your choice well we are going to talk about a Hannibal Lecter film, but maybe not the one people are expecting. We are going to pair Hannibal Lecter up with some born icons. We're going to talk about Joan Allen and Brian Cox in 1986's Manhunter, directed by Michael Mann. I had genuinely not heard of this film until you just mentioned it to me. I had no idea it existed and that any other attempt had been made at you know, adapting the Hannibal books. Well, we'll talk more about that uh, on the next Agents in the Field. Well, there you go, folks. Your mission, should you choose to accept it, is to check out Manhunter. And join us next time on our Agents in the Field episode. Of course, we want to thank you for joining us here on Patreon and supporting the show. We are inching ever close to our goal of upgrading our sound equipment, and we can only apologize for how we sound now. It must be bad. But uh, otherwise, until next week, listeners, among the shadows, I will see you. (laughs) 